You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 48. This show, we are looking at the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, I'm so glad to be back with you for our 48th episode. And today we have a guest that I know we're all going to learn a lot from. I don't know how we're going to keep this down to our normal 30 minutes because Ernie Allen is a powerhouse in the fight against human trafficking, especially in the area of exploited children. He is the co-founder of the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is leading the global effort to protect children from sexual exploitation and abduction. He also served as the president and CEO of our National Center for Missing and Exploited Children um, before he transitioned to just the international um, focus. He is um, absolutely an amazing speaker, speaks at conferences all over the world, has written numerous articles, and his work has been recognized by four presidents, several members of Congress, two U.S. attorneys in all branches of U.S. federal law enforcement, Interpol, and other international law enforcement organizations. So I would love to welcome you, Ernie Allen. Sandy, it's good to be with you, and and happy to be with Dave as well. And thank you for for your leadership and advocacy on these issues. Well, I... um, first discovered your work um, through Dr. Laura Letter. I was living in Greece and I was looking for some resources and she directed me to what you were doing. And this was back in the late 90s. And I have always gone to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And now I go to the international site as well to look for resources because you have built um, a network. It's what I, I talk to people a lot when I do training about building partnerships. Nobody can do this alone. And one of the most interesting networks that you've built is called the Financial Coalition Against Child Pornography. And it includes 34 banking and financial institutions. Um, how does that work to eradicate commercial child pornography? How does that work? Well, well, uh, Sandy, let me let me give you just a, a little bit of context first. Uh, through the National Center's cyber tip line, uh, probably a decade ago, we received a report that led us to a husband and wife pair of entrepreneurs in Texas who weren't making enough money doing what they were doing, so they went into the child pornography business. Uh, we followed up on that report, worked with federal law enforcement and the Dallas police, uh, the couple was arrested, uh, their sites were shut down, and at that moment, we discovered that they had 70,000 customers. Uh, one of their sites was called Baby Rape. So this was extreme content. This was not, uh, this was not legal. Nobody would think this is protected speech. 
Um, 70,000 customers paying $29.95 a month and using their credit cards to access graphic images of, of children being raped and sexually assaulted. Um, I contacted the leaders of a couple of the major credit card companies and asked, how is this possible? And what they said to us is, we don't know what these transactions are for. Uh, people are not writing child pornography on the vouchers, or there's no business code for this. Uh, they're saying these are software purchases or, or some other use. They said, if you can identify for us in a timely way uh, where the account resides, who the merchant bank is, this is the legal use of the payment system. We can stop the payments and shut down the accounts. So with the help of the then chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama, we brought together the leaders of several of these companies. Uh, Senator Shelby said if people were purchasing heroin or cocaine and using their credit cards, we would be outraged and would do something about it, and this is worse. Mm -hmm. And so the companies agreed. Uh, they came together in a voluntary coalition and includes – the leaders in, in the field, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, uh, Discover, Bank America, Citigroup, international institutions like Deutsche Bank, uh, Standard Charter Bank, HSBC. And what they did was donate uh, to our center live accounts. Uh, the National Center, the International Center are not law enforcement agencies. So we engaged key law enforcement agencies located strategically uh, around the country and, and beyond, gave them these live accounts, and when we would identify sites with method of purchase information on them, uh, police would attempt to make purchases. They would go online using these cards. When that transaction went through, we would be able at that moment uh, to identify where the account was, who the merchant bank was. We would alert the payment company. The payment company would stop the payments and shut down the accounts. And then law enforcement would investigate. Uh, in 2006, when we launched this effort, a bank in Singapore, which was a part of this coalition, hired McKinsey Worldwide to do an estimate on the size of the commercial child pornography industry. They said it was a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. uh, over the past five years, we believe that through this process, we've effectively eliminated the use of the credit cards uh, and shut down the vast majority of these transactions. That's the good news. The bad news is we don't believe we've stopped it or ended it. We think we've just moved it. Mm -hmm. So it has now moved into a kind of a shadow economy, an internet-based shadow economy. So the work goes on. Wow. So how are we addressing that shadow econ economy? Well, we're, we are trying to, again, engage uh, companies, uh, look for uh, best practices. Companies like PayPal and Dropbox mm. and, and others are helping us in, in this effort. There are now uh, new digital currencies, currencies uh, that are not government regulated, uh, not bank-based that are uh, the, the equivalent of a kind of a modern barter system via the Internet. Uh, international law enforcement leaders have told us that the preferred currency for commercial child pornography today 
is a digital currency called Bitcoin. And it's a real challenge for law enforcement to deal with it. So we're trying to do that. We're trying to do the same thing we did with the financial coalition. And that is bring together the people who are knowledgeable, who can help come up with approaches. I mean, they're positive uses of a lot of these tools like alternative payment mechanisms and, and others. But unfortunately, the bad guys tend to, tend to stay ahead of the curve and use new technologies and new applications. And it's not just for commercial sexual exploitation. It's for uh, drug trafficking and human trafficking. Human mm -hmm. trafficking has moved from the streets to the Internet. And mm -hmm. we're trying to deal with that as well. Do you feel like that is just international human trafficking when you say from the streets to the Internet? Oh, no. I, I think it is certainly happening internationally, but we've seen it vividly here in the United States. Um, ten years ago, uh, kids who were sold for sex were primarily sold in what were called street tracks, areas of cities uh, where these kids would be paraded on the streets. Uh, today, they're advertised, marketed, and sold uh, via internet sites, classified advertising sites. Uh, four years ago, we entered into an agreement with uh, the then Attorney General of Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal, some other AGs, and Craigslist to try to address this issue because uh, the ability to use the internet uh, has created a situation in which uh, it is easier for the traffickers uh, very low risk and much more profitable. Uh, the potential customers can shop for a kid for sex from the privacy of their own home or hotel room and don't have to put themselves at risk by driving to uh, a, a street scene. So after nearly two years of trying to address this problem online through screening, monitoring, reporting, uh, the AGs, we and Craigslist concluded that it wasn't working. And so Craigslist shut down these ads. Uh, it has moved now. The primary uh, uh, venue for, for these kinds of ads now is a site called Backpage. Uh, and there, there are others out there. And similarly, I met with the owners of Backpage two years ago, and, and they are uh, aggressively monitoring, screening, and reporting uh, but in our judgment, it's not addressing the problem, and it is it is not just a U.S. phenomenon, but it is a huge problem in the United States, and it is a, a global issue. Uh, there are similar sites all over the world, particularly in Latin America, particularly in Asia, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, and Backpage recently announced that it is going global. Uh, so this is a challenge that we're going to have to come to grips with. And the leading international conventions and treaties in the world today, uh, including the UN protocol and the cybercrime convention, are silent regarding the use of the Internet to advertise, market, or sell kids or sell human beings for sex uh, and to collect payment for those services. So we're working with international bodies to try to address that. We're working with parliaments around the world to try to change national laws. Uh, it's a problem that uh, the world has, is just beginning to recognize. Uh, and the, the biggest challenge we face 
which certainly you're aware of and, and Laura is aware of, is that overwhelmingly uh, these kids are hidden victims. Mm-hmm. This is a problem that the world doesn't see. Uh, you know, I hear as I go all around the United States on the issue of human trafficking, well, yeah, that's a, that's a problem in Southeast Asia. You know, mm-hmm. that's a problem in Central America. It's not a problem in my town. Well, our response to that is uh, it is a problem in virtually every community in America. Uh, there is human trafficking in the United States, and overwhelmingly, the victims are not people brought into this country from somewhere else. They're American citizens. They're American kids. I um, just had one of the um, vice cops locally in my class in human trafficking. And in the last year, he reported that they have served and and they're using the victim-centered approach now here locally for commercial sexual exploitation. And in the last year, he said that they have served 300 women and children. 40% were under the age of 18 right here and all of the all of the scoops have been initiated by using online um, investigative techniques sandy that's where it's headed and it it is headed uh, that way for very basic reasons in in 2003 uh, through the national center we launched an effort with the fbi called innocence lost Mm. to try for the first time to address this issue of human trafficking from the 30,000 foot level uh, you know, historically, what would happen is uh, if a if a kid was seen being prostituted on the streets, local law enforcement would arrest the kid. Well, you know, our argument is the kid's the victim, and it's the it's the trafficker, it's the pimp, it's the customers who are the criminals here. So we wanted to try to to look at this problem in a different way. And one of the things we have found through the creation of these Innocence Lost task forces around the country is, one, it's a significant problem. Two, it's organized crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these guys move their victims from community to community. They network with each other. They communicate with each other. This is big business. And I've gone all over the United States saying, this is not traditional organized crime, not mafia or La Cosa Nostra, but it's still organized crime. Well, uh, probably the 50th time I said that, uh, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York indicted members of the Gambino crime family, serious, established, old-line organized crime for selling kids for sex over, over the Internet. Wow. And my question was, why would traditional organized crime become involved in something this seedy, this insidious? And the answer is very basic. It's easy. It's low risk. There's a huge potential consumer base for it, and it's enormously profitable. So we've got to change that. Wow. We could talk about this aspect of it for a long time, but I've got two more questions, and I want to spend a little time. You know, my background's pediatric nursing. So when I um, discovered that you developed a global health coalition, I'm... I really feel like addressing this as a public health issue is critical to the prevention side of this. Can you tell us how you did that and what that means? Well, uh, Sandy, we talked earlier about the financial coalition. We've had some success in bringing together uh, whole industries to address problems in a voluntary way. And I absolutely share 
your conviction that it's critically important that we address this problem as a public health crisis, as a public health epidemic. Uh, there are massive numbers of new laws, international treaties and conventions. Law enforcement is doing more than it ever has before. And yet we felt the problem was getting worse. Uh, and, and so what we are attempting to do is to mobilize the healthcare industry. So we brought together the first meeting of this new global health coalition uh, was held in Zurich, Switzerland in October, hosted by Roche, the Swiss uh, pharmaceutical giant. Uh, other companies that participated were GlaxoSmithKline of the UK, Merck of the United States, Menorini of Italy, Almeral of Spain, UCB of Belgium. Plus, we brought into this process a number of major healthcare institutions, including the CDC, the World Health Organization, uh, the Mayo Clinic, the American Academy of Pediatrics, Harvard Medical School. Uh, the Vatican is a part of this through their uh, pediatric hospital, Bambino Gesù. And, and the challenge that we put to these people was uh, this is not a traditional healthcare uh, issue in which pharmaceutical companies can develop a pill or a shot uh, to fix it, but let's begin to approach it in the same way that the world addressed issues like HIV and AIDS. You know, let's use the public health model and let's begin to recognize key aspects. So we have an ongoing coalition. Uh, we're attempting to do a number of things. We're looking at epidemiological research on these issues. One of the challenges is uh, there are not a lot of data. Hmm. It's hard to measure it. Uh, secondly, one of the things we heard in, in Zurich from some of the top physicians in the world is that they spent five, six years in medical school. They learned about every conceivable malady affecting a child, um, most of which they haven't seen again in 25 years of practice. Nobody talked to them about this. So we are looking at uh, trying to build child abuse, child sexual abuse uh, content into medical school curricula, uh, changing diagnostic codes that physicians use, uh, doing in-service training for healthcare workers, uh, developing the kind of collaborative care approaches that you just talked about, mm -hmm. linking healthcare with social services, with law enforcement, with education, and we're looking at treatments that work. Uh, and the the central focus of this is prevention. So it's just beginning, but but we believe that we can change the way the world addresses issues like child sexual abuse and exploitation. Wow, that's great. And I, I'm looking forward to watching how that develops and being more involved in that. Locally, we've had a push here in Orange County through our Human Trafficking Task Force to um, target intentionally our, our public health department and our medical schools. And we were fortunate in being able to to do some training at the at the medical school with the pediatric residents. And so um, we're ready to join the Global Health Coalition right here. That's, that's terrific. And I mean, we, we really have to take those kinds of models that work and replicate them and, and have that implemented, not just in Orange County, but in communities across America and around the world. Well, 
we're we're ready to to join you and we're really excited that you're coming out here um wow the time just spins past but let me ask you another question here um i know that under your tenure at nicmec national center for missing and exploited children more than 180,000 missing children were recovered and the recovery rate went from 62 percent in 1990 to 97% in 2012. And I think most people think of, of the Missing and Exploited organization as pictures on milk cartons. Um, and that 97% statistic is really amazing, but not if I'm the parent of a 3% kid. Absolutely. Tell Absolutely. me, tell me the, what to the, do for the other 3%. Well, the, the, the good news is Today, more missing kids come home safely in America than at any time in history. That law enforcement is better prepared, responding more swiftly and effectively. We have better law. We have better technology. The public is more alert and aware. But there's still thousands of kids each year that don't make it home. Uh, and, and we know, for example, in the most serious cases in which children are abducted and, and murdered, and you know there have, have certainly been terrible cases like that in, in Orange County, including Samantha Runyon in, mm. in, uh, in Orange County and, and some others. Uh, but in the most serious cases, in three-fourths of those cases, the child is dead within the first three hours. So the good news is that we have placed enormous emphasis on rapid response. You can't wait until tomorrow. We've eliminated the old police waiting periods. Used to be if your child disappeared the police would say, oh, well, he or she just probably ran away. Uh, if he doesn't show up in 24, 48, 72 hours, call us back and we'll take a report. Well, all of that has changed. And so there is rapid response. The FBI gets involved more quickly. There's specialized response. Um, but as you point out, all of these kids don't make it home. And uh, the reality is what we're trying to do is to mobilize the public as, as never before. Average people doing average things and simply paying attention are helping us uh, recover children every day. Uh, a lot of these kids, particularly if they're very young, uh, don't even know that they're missing. Uh, uh, most of America saw the report uh, last year about the child abducted as an infant a 19-day-old infant mm -hmm. from a New York hospital in 1987 who basically found herself on our Internet website, called the National Center, and, and said, uh, I'm not sure who I am. And so basically checking information, doing analytical work, um, looking at timelines, uh, we were able to come up with a, a possible uh, explanation of who she was, alerted the New York police, who went to her home in, in Georgia, did DNA, and confirmed that she was Carlina White, who had been abducted 23 years earlier and had been raised by the abductor as her own child. So, you know, our message to these families are there is hope. Uh, I remember one of my first cases that that I became involved with when I became the president of the National Center back in the 1980s was a seven-year-old abducted from her own front yard in Oceanside, California. I'll never forget her. Her name was Leticia Hernandez. There were witnesses to the abduction, artist drawings of the two abductors, a man and a woman, 
We've circulated her photo widely uh, all over the country and around the world. Twice we thought we were within minutes of recovering Leticia. Thirteen months after she disappeared, her remains were found not mm -hmm. far from her home in, in Oceanside. Uh, everybody was crushed. Uh, a Los Angeles Times reporter called me and said, uh, you know, you got everybody all worked up. You made the community think this was a child that was recoverable and you're going to bring her home. Obviously, she'd been dead a long time. She didn't make it far from her home. Didn't you create false hope? And it sort of stung. And I thought for a minute and then I got mad. And I said, there's no such thing as false hope. You know, what's the alternative? The kid's been missing for a day or a week or a month or, or a year. Uh, she's probably dead. We'll stop looking for her or look for somebody else. You know, with that kind of approach, uh, we wouldn't have found Elizabeth Smart, who came home after nine years, or Sean Hornback after four years, or J.C. Dugard after, what was it, 18 years. Mm -hmm. So the the challenge is not to let the world forget these missing kids because a bunch of them are still out there. Wow, that's inspirational. And we don't give up. We just keep on. And I think that is um, an important message and that parents will especially appreciate hearing that. Um, I know one of the one of the things that were you established was a 24-hour missing children hotline and a cyber tip line. Can you Explain the difference between those and how it, how it works. Yes, the 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 missing children's hotline one eight hundred the lost is for reporting missing child information, uh, calling with sightings of missing children, information about missing children. So it's the it is the national missing child hotline. Uh, in nineteen ninety seven, as the internet began to emerge as uh, not only a great resource, but as a possible risk for kids. Um, Congress asked us, who do you call if you think your kid is being targeted online? Uh, I was testifying before a Senate committee with the FBI director at the time, Louis Free, and uh, a United States senator said, um, isn't it likely that if you call the local police, they're not going to be online, and two, they're going to say, "What's the chat room?" Or mm -hmm. you know what? And so, uh, our argument was there needs to be a mechanism uh, through which people can report information about uh, child exploitation in an online uh, method. And so we created the cyber tip line, cybertipline.com, and it is designed to provide uh, an easy, uh, virtually anonymous reporting method to report suspicions or evidence or information regarding a whole range of child sexual exploitation crimes. Um, it, it is being used not only by the public, but it's being used by internet companies. Uh, and last year, the National Center handled more than 400,000 reports. Wow. So it is working. It's providing investigative tips and leads uh, for law enforcement to do uh, investigative follow-up on. The challenge is to make sure that it is widely known as possible and that uh, people who have information will use it. And it, again, it's cybertipline.com. Fabulous. So 
I, um, I, I've worked a little bit with some of our local law enforcement, and it occurred to me recently when someone was asking me why we're doing a com- conference focused on cyber exploitation. And with my background in pediatrics, I think about how a child does not have the capacity to discriminate between a friend and a stranger on a social networking site. So on Facebook, um, there is no button for stranger. Everybody is a friend. So how does your organization help teach children um, how to know when this isn't really a friend? Well, we, we have uh, the, the National Center developed uh, back uh, in, I think, 2000, uh, a tool that kids could use, that parents could use, that educators could use, and it's called NetSmarts with a Z, uh, N-E-T-S-M-A-R-T-Z. And uh, it is a free site, free content. Our model in creating it was the old children's television workshop at public broadcasting that created Sesame Street and Big Bird and and all of those kinds of things. Um, Our sort of grandiose purpose was to try to do for kids of the web generation, of the Internet generation, what the Children's Television Workshop and PBS did for uh, kids a couple generations ago in in dealing with with television. So it is fun. It is interactive. There is animated content for the younger kids. The the principal spokes character is Clicky, uh, the talking robot. Um, For older kids, their messages and interaction with real kids uh, so I would encourage uh, the, the people who are hearing this to use it. Again, it's all free. The kid proceeds at his own pace. Uh, but for parents, uh, the message is you really need to know what your kids are doing. You need to set limits. You need to monitor. Uh, you need to talk to their kids about their safety. Uh, I just came from uh, a meeting in San Diego with a heroic young woman who at the age of 13 um, was on the internet and met a guy that she thought was the love of her life. The guy charmed her. She knew that, that she couldn't, she shouldn't meet him offline, but she did out of curiosity. He got her, he understood her problems. He groomed her. Uh, and she went to look in the car just to see what he looked like and who he was. It was a, she lived in a cold weather climate, didn't even wear a coat. Uh, And he grabbed her, threw her in the car, and she ended up uh, chained in an underground dungeon and traumatized and abused outrageously. Uh, This right out of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Mm -hmm. Rapid FBI response, and uh, this guy was bragging about this kid online and one of his uh, friends online thought this was beyond the pale, alerted authorities, the kid was rescued alive after four days. And she talked about that to a group of kids and everyone in the room saw that this was not a dumb kid. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is a very smart, alert um, uh, kid, but the bottom line is she's a kid and it never occurred to her uh, that this guy was anything other than he appeared to be. So what we're trying to do is to empower kids to give them the knowledge uh, so that they can recognize uh, 
recognize risks and and avoid them uh, because the reality in in today's world uh, is that while the internet is a great thing there are dangers lurking and you have to use it safely and responsibly and you can't assume just because you're on Facebook or some other site that everyone that that you deal with is who and how they should be and you need to use the tools that these sites provide uh, to limit access to those. You need to use the privacy tools. So we think all of these resources are great, but there's a dark side and moms and dads and kids simply need to be alert and aware. And I'm really glad to hear the moms and dads part because the kids ultimately don't make good decisions because they're still in the process of learning how to do that and developing that part of their cognitive ability. So parents go to the website, go to netsmarts.org and use these tools. There's a special workshop just for you to teach you how to protect your kids better. Um, that's one of my favorite things about about your website, Ernie. And our time is about up. So uh, I want to encourage listeners. I think this is going to air before our conference. Come and hear Ernie at Vanguard University, March 8th and 9th. Um, go online to insurejustice.com so you can register right away. And I also wanted to mention, Sandy, to Ernie's point about the NetSmarts resources. We've also uh, looked at that in some depth in a couple of previous podcasts as well. So if that's something that uh, you're hearing about for the first time and you haven't listened to those shows, go back and take a listen to episode number 12. And that's on how to keep kids safe online. We talk about NetSmarts in some detail. And we also talked about in episode 35, uh, tools for teachers to keep kids safe as well. And so if you haven't listened to those, go to our website, gcwj.vanguard.edu and uh, click on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast and you will be able to find those resources as well. Thank you so much, Ernie. You, I can't wait to have you out here. Well, Sandy, I'm I'm looking forward to coming to Orange County and to, and to Vanguard and to, and to being a part of of your conference. And I'm grateful for the extraordinary work that that you and your colleagues continue to do. And Sandy, that's going to just about do it for our time today. I want to thank our guest Ernie Allen for joining us and for the opportunity for us all to learn so much more about this topic. Sandy, it's it's both heartening and also. There's so much work to be done yet, and I'm so glad that leaders like Ernie are in the, this field and working hard to help us to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference. And you can do the same thing as well. If you have feedback about this episode and have questions for us, want to know more, email us at gcwj at vanguard.edu, or you can call us anytime at 714 966 6360. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Sandy. Bye bye.